and welcome to the Readings Podcast. Today we have a live recording of an event that occurred at Readings Carlton. The event is a conversation between Barry Cassidy and ABC journalist Rachel Brown, author of Trace, Who Killed Maria James? Enjoy. Well, thank you, Caitlin Cassidy. <laughs> um, <laughs> just when you think the book industry publishing is under pressure, just take a look around and, and see what readings have done here uh, in Carlton. It's extraordinary that they've, uh, they've been able to expand in the way that they have and to present a bookshop at a time when the industry is supposed to be in trouble. And just for the record, this is the first sellout event at the new and expanded uh, bookstore. <laughs> I think Paul Keating was the last to sell out the last um, bookstore before it was expanded. So tonight we're going to hear about and from Rachel and hear about Trace. Rachel put together the most successful podcast uh, that the ABC has ever produced, not only in terms of those who listen to it and the, the quality of it, but it won the highest award in journalism, uh, the Walkley Award. Um, and now she's translated that to a book, which is no easy feat. Uh, now, Helen Garner uh, writes the, um, uh, endorses the book on the cover, and don't underestimate what that means. It's very rare for Helen Garner to contribute in that way. And she called it, um, she talked about the grit and the faithfulness, the faithfulness to the task. I would also talk about the enormous effort, the patience, the perseverance, the innovation that's involved in all of this. And that's what uh, she won the Walkley for. But also something that I'm not sure Rachel even understood that she had, and that is the skills as a writer. She's taken to this author idea, <laughs> like water off a duck's back, I tell you. Um, but the other thing that I think is really important to pick up, a very important aspect of it, and with Adam and Mark sitting here in the front row, I think I need to mention, there is a temptation when you're doing crime and true crime to go for the clickbait, the sensationalism, the exaggeration. This book is a study in how to do it with warmth and empathy. Um, Chris Masters talks about it on the dust cover as well. He talks about the redemptive warmth of humanity, and I think that comes through. So the subtitle of the book, Who Killed Maria James? Now, the family, Adam and Mark, have never stopped wondering. The police and the community eventually stopped asking. And then along came Rachel, <laughs> and she stirred up a hornet's nest. So, Rachel, I guess the first question is... How did this case come to your attention and what was it about it that, um, that motivated you to take it up? Um, so first of all, uh, thank you very much for coming. It's so wonderful to see so many people here. Um, Kerry Ritchie, a colleague of ours and a dear friend of mine since I started at the ABC a billion years ago, um, said to me that... Um, she'd been working on a story in 2013 and after that she'd learned um, that there'd been a development in the Maria James case and she'd heard that an electrician had given a um, police statement and that nothing had ever come of it. And what was in that police statement was so explosive that I couldn't understand why Victoria Police had let it go um, and not followed up on that. So it was that 
combined with, you know, I'd, I'd been listening to um, Serial and podcasts out of America and the way they were using a kind of relatively new, well, what was then a niche medium to do investigative journalism in a space that was so intimate. Um, so you could tell these beautiful stories and you could do it well and it didn't have the restrictions of time, um, which as it, we know in a newsroom is often a big limitation. So I saw those things working beautifully together and so I thought, well, this could be a way to tell this story and a way to look into it. So I approached um, the family, Mark and Adam James, who are here tonight, and I would urge you to um, say hi to them after um, because I know that they've the phenomenal outpouring of support to them, I think, has just been magnificent. Um, but Mark very graciously gave me his blessing, as did Ron Eddles, who was the detective. This was his very first homicide case and he's never managed to solve it. So I thought those two men would be a barometer of whether this was a good thing to do. And thankfully they said yes, and here we are. Now... It was a big step, though, for you to take it on just the same because you've been a foreign correspondent very successfully. You're a senior reporter at Radio Current Affairs. You must have known that to take this on, you had to step away from all of that. And really, initially, with no guarantee that it was really going to happen. Mm. A, big, a big decision to take. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't happening, So, um, as you know. So I approached Mark James at, I think, in March 2016. Um, started digging into it, started speaking to Ron Eddles, dug up some things, learnt about a certain priest, approached the ABC and said, I think we should do this story as a podcast. Uh, ABC News had never done anything like this before. There were podcasts coming out of Radio National, uh, but not out of ABC News. So I had to lobby long and hard. Um, so I was doing this work in my spare time, basically. So while my friends were posting amazing pictures of you know, dinners on Facebook and dates they'd been on and holidays, I was, you know, and I don't joke when I say this, I was transcribing pretty brutal accounts of child sex abuse and working out how to find someone's birth record in Italy. Um, so it was, 2016 was a pretty hard and dark slog. Um, but I believed in this and I thought it was an important story to tell and thankfully at the end of 2016, um, the ABC said that they were behind it and commissioned Trace as a podcast. Hey, you talk about uh, some of those things and, and just how incredibly unpleasant it must have been to dig even deeper into the child abuse that went on, the satanic cult and the horrible stories around that. There must have been times when you thought, look, this is, this is having a hell of a toll. Maybe I should never have got started. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes. There was, I, I never thought about stopping it, but there was one day that Kerry, so Kerry Ritchie, the friend of mine that worked on this, there was one day she said, what are we doing? You know, maybe it was, um, it is in the book and I won't go into it because it's very upsetting, but we were late for an interview with a sexual abuse survivor um, because we were stuck in Father Bongiorno's sister's house. And so we were learning about him and I thought that would help me understand him and try to help his victims and then we were late to meet a victim of Father O'Keefe, um, another priest that was caught up in all this. Um, and so he um, ripped the shit through me basically over the phone, um, called me every name under the sun, um, said I was scum and, and I was 
in that moment because I wasn't there and we promised him that we'd be there and he'd probably spent days um, gearing up for that interview and working out what he was going to say and I was late and I know that's not abuse but in his mind it would have been. Um, so things like that, you know, I, I was dealing with and still am, I'm still doing checks with these people. Um, some of them are not in a good way, some of them are suicidal still doing checks to see that they're okay. So I was doing that and dealing with dark material, um, suicidal victims. In my spare time, around my actual job, lobbying the ABC to take this. So yeah, it, it was a very dark time. Um, we won't go into too much detail yeah. about the book because either you've, you've heard the excellent podcast and, and you know the story or you're about to read the book and you don't want to know the story, either way. Um, but there are, there, there are some key elements to it that I, I think we need to discuss. And, and the first breakthrough came courtesy of Adam, who had the courage um, to eventually tell his story, and that brought both Father Ron Giorno and the even more sinister Father O'Keefe into the picture. Yeah, I, I can't speak highly enough of Adam and Mark James for the bravery that they've shown um, and the other survivors that we spoke to for Trace. You know, they really, they were shown such little compassion as children and yet a lot of them showed compassion in spades to tell their story, to help me do the investigation, to help this family that many of them didn't even realise they were helping. So I, I quarterized the investigation into three. I looked at the Maria James Cold case, uh, Father Bongiorno and Father O'Keefe. And so very often victims of one um, crime were not told about the others. And so all I had said to some survivors is, you know, your story might help a family. And they didn't know who that family was. And yet they were so brave to, you know, pick away at those scars and tell me their stories. So I found everyone involved in this book quite. The, 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 this book is their win, actually. It's it's not it's not my story. It's their story. Yeah. The the uh, I think the most important development, perhaps the worst setback along the way for you as the story was unfolding, must have been the day that you discovered that evidence had been tampered with. Mm. Either tampered with, mishandled, mistakes had been made or whatever. It seems to me there's a strong possibility that it was deliberate, but it involved the pillow and the quilt and, and it kind of set back the prospect of DNA evidence turning yeah. up the killer, right? Yeah. So I had always been terrified about um, what the answer of my investigation might be and what answer I was going to give the James family. but. I never thought that it would be, I'm sorry, there can't be an answer. And the, a certain phone call that I got that told me about a DNA bungle, at first I got really excited because I thought, oh, who some people think it was who committed this awful crime is back in the frame. And then in the second, you know, nanosecond, I thought, well, even if it is, we won't be able to prove it because there's no DNA evidence from the crime scene. So that was heartbreaking to me. Um, and I told Mark James about it and, you know, to his credit, <laughs> I, was, I feel like I was more um, upset than he was because it, 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 everything slipped into place, I feel, because um, Mark had been long saying this doesn't make sense, certain people should still be in the frame. So to him, it's like a, a fog lifted and that did, it did help explain a lot of the things that, that have gone on. Now... Going back to the beginning, there's just one, one thing that occurred to me as I was rereading the book again this week is 
when um, Maria's former husband, their dad, turned up at work, there was a note saying that Maria had called. Mm. He arrived at work late because he'd left his mobile phone behind. What would have happened had he not left his mobile behind? As he turned up at work on time, yeah. would, would he have taken the call from Maria earlier? Would it, would it have changed anything? I don't know whether it would have changed anything, but I think we would know who the visitor was that she was about to have. Um, so Maria James had phoned John James and he was out, he was at home. Um, and so when he did call her back, there was someone there in the bookshop and she said, hang on a second. And that's when he heard an argument in the background and then we all know what unfolded. So I think, yeah, it's a good point. I think mm. he had he been there, at least she might have said, look, I'm calling to tell you that I've called over like the, hypothetically, um, one of the theories is she, w she would have said, I've called Father Bongiorno around, Adam's told me something, I'm very concerned by it and I'm going to put this allegation to him. Yeah. So, and we'll take questions in a moment because I'm really, um, I'd, I'd be really interested to know what, what questions you've got for Rachel, but what would it now take to solve this? What would it take for the breakthrough to happen? There, I still think, and Ron, uh, Ron Idles, um, who unfortunately couldn't be here tonight, is adamant that there's someone out there that knows who did this um, that might take their secret to the grave. So mm. it would take someone with knowledge coming forward and finally helping this family with answers or it would take whatever police, Victoria police have found traces of something on Maria's clothing, but they say that it's their testing facilities, DNA testing facilities in Victoria are still not sophisticated enough to test. So they're telling me we need to wait until our methods become a bit more sophisticated or um, there are places overseas, there's places in Australia trialling what's called low-level DNA testing. So I'm thinking about sending some items to get low-level DNA tested and then perhaps if that, if, if Victoria Police can do that with the samples that they've got, um, we might be able to compare, compare the two. Have they got samples of um, Father Bongiorno's DNA? Uh, they won't tell me that. Mm. I'm not sure. But it wouldn't be too hard to get. Yeah. So it's, it just seems to me that the breakthrough would come through that, through DNA evidence, whether it be more material or better standards. Yeah. Unless yeah. someone's holding on to a confession. Yeah. Um, unless if it was a priest and he confessed to another priest unless one of those priests come forward. But I think that breaks the confessional seal. It, it breaches canon law. So you wouldn't be holding your breath on that. Um, I think it would take more testing on the exhibits that Victoria Police have and then perhaps comparing that to a magazine I have um, with blood on it from the bookshop or the item that someone has given me that, has, that could have familial DNA on it from Father O'Keefe. And, and just finally, before we take questions... Um, the, the some people perhaps reading the book want an answer, <laughs> yeah. and there is there is no answer. Um, others will be satisfied that all the evidence is out there. You put it all out there, and they can they can make up their own minds. But w what do you say to people who pick up true crime cold cases, and at the end of the day, they have to be left without the answer, yeah. just as you are. 
I'm sorry, you're just going to have to wait. <laughs> I, and I just think I felt very frustrated because I was watching, li- reading all the iTunes um, reviews on the podcast and I'd never done a podcast before. And it was really heartening because they talk about what great journalism it is and how um, sympathetic it had been to the family, which makes my heart sing because that's I never wanted this to veer into um, entertainment. Um, but then the iTunes reviews kind of fell into geez, don't hold your breath waiting for the next episode. And I think there was a lack of understanding that this is non-fiction, you know, it's family's pain. And so to these people, I just felt like screaming, imagine how the James boys feel. Mm. Um, So I can't give you an answer right now. Um, But things happen every day. People email me with new leads to chase up. Someone's got in touch with me saying that they want to do an interview about a completely different suspect. Um, You know, there's DNA to be tested uh, there's the leads. There's there's still more leads to chase down. It just requires patience. This question might even come from the audience, but what are you doing next? Are you <laughs> obviously you'll be keeping one eye to this. Yeah. You'll never let it go. Are you moving on to something else, or are you going back and joining us in the office? <laughs> um, to th- so persisting with this, um, we're all hoping that in the next couple of months the coroner will hopefully decide that there will be a new inquest into the Maria James death. So staying on this case, following up those new leads, and I'm also digging into a case at the moment um, that I really want to be traced to. It's another Melbourne-based cold case. I think a lot of it reson- will resonate with the community. Um, it's got a lot of – it illuminates different problems in society. Um, so I'm looking at that. Are you talking there about Father Bongiorno or Father O'Keefe? Bongiorno. Bongiorno. Yeah. Um, I think you loved him or you hated him. Um, He was a very divisive character from what I've learned. Um, I've spoken to his friends and his family who say that he called a spade a spade and he wasn't ashamed of that and he'd walk down the street in a singlet and wouldn't care and he was, um, what's the word, he's just um, bolshy. Um, and had no shame about that. So I think they, I think everyone knew what kind of character he was. In terms of the sexual abuse, um, there have been so many men that I've spoken to who've been sexually abused by him, and I think that only really started to come out. Um, well, he was, he was actually, unlike a lot of priests, um, tried. So he's, his case went to court. Um, three victims took him to three, three survivors, sorry, took him to court. And he was acquitted on two counts, so the DPP let the third one go because they didn't like their chances. So by the time Father Bongiorno died, his name was had been sullied. And so I think that's testament to the fact that he's now lying in an unmarked grave um, in the same plot as his dad, I think. Whereas Father O'Keefe is in a big bluestone chapel um, with the marble plaque because his sins hadn't come to light. So, yeah, I, I think people knew that he was a... a boisterous man I'm not sure they were aware of of the child sexual abuse but I think that started to come to light in the early maybe late 90s early 2000s but he passed away in 2002. It kind of makes your blood boil when you read that account that those um the two those charges were uh, were dropped in the end or he beat he beat the beat the charges I just wonder now though based on the experiences of the last few years whether whether we have moved on yeah. and, and that he would have been convicted by today's standards? I think there, there's been some recommendations precisely about that in the Royal Commission. 
Um, and the detective who worked on that case, it's a beautiful guy, Sol Solomon, um, he's in the book, and he said had, they, had these cases not been severed on presentment, which is split into three, he's um, convinced that Father Bongiorno would have been convicted. So luckily for these men, a state compensation, a state tribunal compensation panel decided that he had committed child sex, sexual offences, so these three men got compensation. But, yeah, I think today... Um, there's a greater chance, I think, that they would be tried together. So the jury, or at least juries, would know of the other offences. Just on that too, the other case that you, um, you you talk about the policeman from where was he from? The uh, Murray Town Robertson was that his name? Oh, uh, Dennis Ryan. Oh, uh, Dennis Mildura. Ryan. Yeah. That that's uh, that's an extraordinary story as well. I mean, just just give us a sense of um, of his involvement. So Dennis Ryan is this. Um, dogged cop who, well, ex-cop um, in Mildura who took on Monsignor Day. So Monsignor Day was a um, sex abuser up in Mildura. Dennis Ryan reported um, a teacher at a high school said, can you please look into him and don't tell your sergeant Jim Barrett because he's part of the Catholic Mafia. So Dennis did the investigation, took it above Jim Barrett and then was told to stay out of it, that he'd breached the chain of command, um, that he'd done the wrong thing. And it was all a bit of a whitewash um, from what I can gather speaking to Dennis and in reports of it. And Victoria Police put it down to a, um, what did they call it? Um, like a personality difference between these two between two headstrong detectives, and Father um, Dennis Ryan was ostracised by the two things he loved most in the world, which is the Victorian Police Force and the Mildura community. And some people still don't speak to him. And it's been only recently you might have read about it in the news um, that he finally got given compensation for being um, hounded out of the police force, and finally that the. the credit that he deserves but you know when I met him he was living in this tiny flat on his own and had to shuffle across the lino in the kitchen to make me a coffee because to put the cups in the microwave because he didn't have a kettle and that just broke my heart that this guy who'd taken on the Catholic mafia and the Victorian police force and had just kind of been left in the cold. Um, I, I took it up because I I was getting, on a personal note, I was tired of the daily turn and doing stories that weren't rewarding for me and I wasn't helping anyone. So I saw this as a beautiful chance to do what most of us get into journalism in the first place for, which is to try to affect change. Um, and sadly, we rarely get to do that because of the daily churn. So this was a beautiful opportunity to try to do that. I think Victoria Police work very hard. I think they don't have the resources that they probably need. Um, when I naively said to them, oh, this will be great because it'll be interactive and people can email in with leads and you might get 100 leads about a white car. And the detective said to me, yeah, but Rach, then I have to look through 100 emails about a white car. And so that cemented, you know, I'd been very naive about this whole thing. Um, but he's right, he would have. And maybe all of them had come to nothing, but maybe one of them had come to something. So I just think that they also work on cold cases between the actual cases. So they're doing, you know, um, they've got bigger fish to fry, basically. I think they think um, than someone, than a killer who might have been dead for, I don't know, 20 years. Um, so I understand that this can't always be at the forefront of their mind. Um, I would have liked a little bit more help 
Um, but I think they saw me as more of a pest <laughs> than a help. Um, but I also respect that the sensitivity around cases and how careful they have to be um, because it is still an active investigation. So to answer your question, they would say that they it was it was and is still open, and that they constantly go back and look at cases um, as time goes on. So their answer would be, well, we were looking at it. Um, they might argue that this bungle might have been discovered regardless. No. <laughs> My feeling is I'd been sending them lists of questions every couple of months, um, and I think that might have prompted one of the detectives to kind of look back over things and found the anomal anomaly which led to us dis discovering the DNA bungle. I'm biased, but that's, yeah. that's what I think. And, and the other thing to keep in mind with the police, they can do a Crime Stoppers news conference or something and then that's it. Um, when the podcast went out, so many Australians listened to that and that jogs memories, it gets people thinking about it and it did turn up information and, and let's hope now that the book, again, on top of that, has the same impact. I mean, it's not out there yet. It's just be, be, they're just selling it now. So let's see whether um, the book itself uh, might show. I, I just think the media has a role. If they want to start taking up these cases, you never know. You never know what you'll find at, at the end of the track because the police do have limited resources and and maybe sometimes they do give up a little too easily. There was a Melbourne University law professor that had a go at me on Twitter um, saying it's not the right forum. Um, podcasts aren't the right forum to try to solve cold cases. And to that, I kind of just thought, well, if the police have given up on this family and the judiciary is not doing anything with it, then who is, you know, where, where else can we play this out? So I think if it can be played out sensitively, um, which I've always, that's always been my number one priority to do this respectfully, then yes, this is the right forum for it. And I think the interactivity, I, I've spoken, sorry, I hope I wasn't too much of a downer. I've spoken a lot about the darkness in this story and, and the survivors and the toll that it's taken on people. But the really beautiful thing about Trace, um, which I will always treasure, is the people that have come forward with leads. So we mobilised audiences like the ABC has never seen before with this podcast. And for them to come forward with leads that could now see a coroner's court, a current coronial case being reopened, and also support. Lawyers have written in offering pro bono support. Um, old teachers of Adam have written to say, can you please um, get me in touch with Adam again? I want to chat to him. I remember his, him and his amazing kid. You know, people stop Mark at his shopping centre and say, good on you, well done, keep going. You know, and that for me, given that this has consumed the best part of two years of my life, to hear things like that, that makes it all worth it. You know, the the lobbying, the 3am finishes, the, you know, I've killed all my plants uh, because <laughs> this is all I've done for two years. So it's the audience, the community rallying has really been the most magical thing about Trace. Uh, the question for those who can't hear down the back is whether, based on all the evidence, has Rachel formed a personal view about what might have happened? This is a really tricky one for me to answer because there are 10 cold case boxes of Maria James's um, exhibits and case notes that I haven't seen. So I can only make judgments on what I've been able to dig up, which, you know, might be minuscule compared to the 10 boxes that they've got. Um, from the stories that I've heard, it, pedophilia is a, strong, is a strong motive and it's the strongest motive that I've been able to find. 
to answer your question. But I also don't want to point fingers at people um, because I know in a lot of podcasts at the moment, I won't name names, but they make it very clear who they think did it in a sense. And I think that's really dangerous because I think if police go to charge someone, I never want Trace, the podcast or the book, to be used as an exculpatory reason why whoever they charge could walk. You know, I don't want the defence lawyer saying, well, Rach Brown said he did it so we won't get a fair trial, you know, or Rach Brown said it was the comic book guy, so that's an exculpatory reason why it can't be my guy, you know. So that's why I, I kind of... I hear your question and a lot of people have asked me that, but um, I never want to be in that position where I jeopardise these, you know, men's chances of getting an answer. So pedophilia is the strongest motive that i found, um, but there equally could be other men, women, um, other names in that box that I don't know about that could have a, just a stronger motive. Well, thank you, everybody, for coming along. Look, do buy the book. It's, it's, uh, it's beautifully written. It's, um, I think the structure, given the, the nature of it, uh, was beautifully handled. Uh, Rachel inserted herself into the book just as much as she needed to, and she needed to, um, because Rachel became a part of the story because of her doggedness. I think that, too, was, uh, was really well handled. It's a great read. Enjoy it. Um, you can buy it in two places, I think just here or no, at the front. At the front and where will Rachel be doing the signing? At the lectern. So line up everybody <laughs> and thank you very much for coming.